Along Highway 13, near the southern Illinois town of Harrisburg, is a stretch of road that's dedicated to a police officer who was murdered back in 1927. Most of the people who travel along this stretch of highway have no idea who Lori L. Price was or the circumstances that led to his violent end. They don't know that his death was tied into the career of one of Illinois' most famous outlaws or that the story of his murder is one of crime, corruption, and ghosts. Illinois State Police Officer Lori Price, along with his wife Ethel, vanished on January 19, 1927 from their home in Marion. Some would say that Price's disappearance could be blamed on the company that he kept, or at least because of what he knew, because he was a longtime friend of gangster Charlie Berger, who believed that Price had information about the destruction of Charlie's hideout, a barbecue stand near Harrisburg called Shady Rest. But whatever the reason for Lori and Ethel's vanishing and subsequent murders, it signed a death sentence for Charlie Berger and left a lingering haunting behind. Welcome to a special episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, this episode was recorded live at the 21st Annual Dead of Winter Festival at the Mysterious Mineral Springs on February 9th, 2019. What you're about to hear, mistakes and all, is the sole responsibility of the podcast's hosts who take full blame for the disaster which may or may not happen. So what I didn't tell you was that last year, nothing recorded. Not accurate. Nothing. Okay, well, whatever. It, it was, we couldn't use the recording, but Leah happened to be sitting here streaming our podcast on her phone. So that podcast that you heard from last year, that's all it was. It was off Leah's phone. So uh, anyway, so that was our disaster. We're going to hope for not one this year. So Anyway, so welcome to all our guests who are with us today and to all of you who will be tuning in to hear what happened on Tuesday, February 12th, when this episode airs. A lot has changed with the podcast since Cody and I first attempted a recording like this in 2018. And, oh, and this year, we'll even try to make sure the recorder's turned on. <laughs> Believe it or not, last year, the, oh, I already spoiled this, didn't I? Broadcast you heard was actually recording from Leah's phone since our equipment failed to record the episode. Thanks. This is high-level professionalism at work. In spite of this, let me say thanks again to all of you who have given us such great reviews over the last year, except for the guy who just gave us a glowing review and thought one star meant great. <laughs> if that was you, please go back and fix it. Um, and for those of you who have been supportive of all that we do, we appreciate it more than you know, and we hope that you'll be as excited as we are when the new season starts later this month. But for now, on with this show. There is no question that Lori Price died because of his friendship with Charlie Berger, the most notorious bootlegger and racketeer in Southern Illinois in the 1920s. 
Charlie was an unusual man. Those who met him for the first time were always impressed by his handsome appearance and his pleasant manner. His handshake was hearty, his smile was quick, and the riding breeches and leather jacket that he customarily wore were always neat and clean. Just under six feet tall, he always carried himself in a way that betrayed his military background. He usually wore two guns and holsters, and a Thompson machine gun was his weapon of choice. The son of Jewish immigrant parents, he was born in New York, lived in St. Louis, and was raised in the coal town of Glen Carbon, Illinois. He volunteered for service during the Spanish-American War, and when he returned from Cuba, worked as a cowboy out west before drifting back to East St. Louis, where he discovered the rackets, working his way up in the vice trade from extortion to women and gambling. During Prohibition, he became a bootlegger, first joining up with the notorious Shelton brothers to do battle with the Ku Klux Klan, which was intent on shutting down liquor business in the region, and of course, getting rid of all the Jews, Catholics, immigrants, and African-Americans in Southern Illinois. After the power of the Klan was broken in the area, Berger and the Sheltons became bitter enemies. With no one else left to fight, they started fighting each other, competing for the liquor and gambling money that was being freely spent by the locals. Bodies, both those of gangsters and civilians, piled up as the war raged across the region. Gangsters constructed heavily fortified tanks out of old trucks, blasting at one another on highways and back roads. After two of Charlie Berger's gunmen were found murdered on an abandoned stretch of road, Berger and several of his men called on a Shelton friend named Joe Adams, who was a roadhouse, opera roadhouse operator, Stutz motor dealer, and mayor of West City, a small town on the edge of Benton, Illinois. They were looking for the Shelton's tank truck, which they'd heard was in Adams' garage for repairs. Berger demanded that Adams turn it over. If he didn't, they'd fill him so full of holes, Charlie told him, that no one would recognize his corpse. Adams refused, and the argument ensued. Before he left, Berger told Adams to deliver the truck to Shady Rest. If he did so, he could save himself, quote, a lot of trouble with undertakers and caskets, if you know what I mean. Apparently, great comedian, too. Adams called for the Sheltons for help. They sent about 20 gunmen to Johnston City where they burned down a Charlie Berger roadhouse. A few nights later, a Berger associate named John Milroy was machine gunned at a roadhouse outside of Culp. The mayor and the chief of police were also at the illegal speakeasy that night and were shot at. The mayor was fatally wounded, but the police chief who ran at the sound of the first shot escaped with a flesh wound. Not like on Monty Python. A few days later, a homemade bomb was tossed from a speeding car towards Shady Rest. The bomb had been intended for the building, but it missed, and Berger's hideout was unharmed. Two days later, Berger machine gunner shot up the home of Joe Adams in West City. Then, hours later, members of the Shelton gang dropped dynamite and nitroglycerin bombs on Charlie Berger's roadhouse the Shady Rest barbecue joint on Highway 13. The bombs were so poorly put together though that only one of them exploded, killing a dog. The attack was a failure, but it was the very first aerial bombing that had ever occurred in American history. The Burger Gang, and this is Southern Illinois for you, though the Burger Gang retaliated the next week using a more effective bomb in response. It exploded at Joe Adams' house, damaging the front porch, blowing the door off its hinges and shattering the windows. Had the bomb landed just 10 feet closer to the house, everyone in it, including Adams, his wife, and his brother, would have been killed. As it was, no one was injured, but they wouldn't be so lucky the next time. On Sunday afternoon, December 12th, two men came to the door of Adams' house and told his wife they had a letter from one of the Shelton brothers. When he answered his wife's call, one of them handed Adams a note. 
While he read it, both of them pulled guns from their coats and shot him in the stomach and chest. He lived just long enough to tell his wife he had not recognized his killers. The next day at the coroner's inquest, Mrs. Adams blamed the killing on Charlie Berger. As for Blur, hang on. As for Berger, he blew the whole thing off. When asked about the murder by a reporter from the International News Service who was covering the gun battles in Southern Illinois in the same way they breathlessly covered the beer wars in Chicago, Berger replied, I don't know who killed Joe Adams, but I'm certainly glad he did. Everyone comes to ask me this, who did this and who did that? What am I, the detective force for Southern Illinois? Who the hell cares who killed Joe Adams? Nice guy. Well, somebody did, because in the early morning hours of January 9, 1927, Shady Rest was destroyed by a series of bombs that were a little better constructed than those thrown from the airplane. A farmer who lived about a half mile away was awakened by the blast in the middle of the night and later said that the roadhouse exploded with such force that it shook its, his own house on its foundation. It would be the destruction of Shady Rest that would result in Lori Price being marked for death by his one-time pal, Charlie Berger. One thing we know for sure is that Price was a frequent visitor at Shady Rest. Local rumor claimed that he was an active participant in Berger's stolen car racket. Berger's men would steal a car, hold it until a reward was posted, and then park it in some remote spot and tip off Lori Price as to its whereabouts. Price would then find the car and split the reward with Charlie Berger. Now, no one can say for sure if this rumor is true, but it is certain that Price was on close terms with Berger and his gunmen. He was also one of the last people to see Shady Rest before it was destroyed by a bomb, presumably placed by members of the Shelton Gang. At the inquest into the deaths of four people killed when the building exploded, Price admitted he'd been at Shady Rest on January 8th. He stopped in after attending a movie in Marion, Illinois. Steve George, the building's caretaker, greeted him at the door and asked him to come in and meet his wife. While there, Price noticed that a man he'd never seen before was sitting, apparently half intoxicated, near the fireplace. He also saw a young man whom George called Clarence passed out drunk on a cot in an adjoining room. George told Price that when the stranger left, he was going to bed. Price testified that he stayed just a few minutes and then returned to Marion. He was having breakfast early the next morning when he heard that explosions had leveled Shady Rest. That was Price's last public comment about the barbecue joint, about Charlie Berger, and well, pretty much about everything else. One week after the inquest, Price's stepfather, who lived nearby on the edge of Marion, became concerned because he hadn't seen Price or his wife Ethel for two days. He went to their house and knocked repeatedly, but after getting no response, he called the police. Deputies forced the door open. Price's State police uniform was folded on a chair and his pistol and gun belt were lying on the dining room table. Although the bed was rumpled, no one had slept in it. Ethel's nightgown, neatly folded, lay on the spread. Her hat and coat were missing and the telephone wires to the house had been cut. Price and his wife had both vanished. Had they been kidnapped or worse? On February 5th, Lori Price's body was discovered in a field about 25 miles north of Heron. A local farmer found the partially clothed corpse and called the police. Price had been shot several times and was covered with blood. His body had apparently been in the field for several days. Animals had chewed on his hands and other extremities. County officers identified the dead man as the missing state policeman. Reporters immediately broadcast the sensational news. One reporter asked Carl Shelton, one of the notorious brothers, if he had any idea who might have killed Lori Price. He replied, 
Well, this is my theory. You know, he used to hang around Charlie Berger's place, and the papers say he was there before it burned down, and Berger, you know, is always suspicious of spies. I always figured he did away with Price on the theory that Price was going to inform those who destroyed it of a good time to do it. I never had any trouble with Price, and I don't know his wife. Charlie Berger could not be reached for comment. Illinois State Police detectives worked the case, but would not get a break until May of 1927. Initially, they believed that Price, as Charlie Berger's pal, had been killed by the Sheltons in retaliation for Joe Adams. But an informant within the Berger gang told them that Price had been killed by Berger simply because he knew too much. No one knew what happened to Ethel Price until Art Newman began to talk. Newman was a trusted Burger gang member who had gone on the run to California when things became too hot in Illinois. He was picked up in Long Beach and extradited back to the state. Franklin County Sheriff Jim Pritchard went to California to bring Newman back and he took along a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch named John T. Rogers. Somehow, during the long ride back to Illinois, Rogers got Newman to tell his story. The confession was given to the state's attorney when they returned and he indicted Newman, Charlie Berger, Ernest Blue, Connie Ritter, Leslie Simpson, and Riley Simmons for the murder of Lori Price. The story that Newman told was a chilling one. He claimed that on the day the Prices disappeared, Berger had called to him in Harrisburg and informed him that the gang intended to question Price about his snitching to Williamson County authorities. The Prices had visitors until after midnight, and when they left, Berger and the others entered the house. Even though Price swore that he had not been informing on Berger and had nothing to do with the explosion at Shady Rest, Berger ordered him outside and into Newman's car. Price asked Charlie if he planned to hurt him, but Berger said he just wanted to talk to him. Because that's what happens in every episode of The Sopranos. You never come back. He shoved Price into the back seat of the car and climbed in next to him. Wooten slid into the passenger seat next to Newman, and as the car started, Berger called out to the men who were heading for the second automobile. He yelled out to them, take that woman and do away with her. Price pleaded with Berger not to hurt his wife, but Charlie told him to shut up. He ordered Newman to keep driving and then began to question the policeman about everything he suspected about him. Price was an informant, Berger declared, and there was nothing worse than a disloyal friend. He ordered Newman to drive them to the ruins of Shady Rest. They arrived around 2 a.m. and Berger dragged Price out of the car. Price denied again that he'd betrayed the gang, but Berger shot him three times. Just then, a second car of gangsters pulled onto the road next to the ruins. Wooten panicked, certain that Ethel Price had just seen the murder of her husband. But one of the newcomers climbed out of the car, heard the conversation, and told them not to worry about the woman. They killed her. When asked what they'd done with her, the man replied, we shot her and threw her into a mine shaft near Carterville. Berger proposed putting Price's body in the same shaft, but gang members told him they dumped metal and timbers down into the hole to hide the body. Berger thought for a minute and then suggested another mine near DeCoin. When he told Newman to put the bloody and still breathing Lori Price back into the car, he told the state's attorney in his later confession he refused. He said that Berger then became very angry, pointed his machine gun at the men standing around him and shouted, everybody will go through with this for me or I'll wipe you all out. Price was tossed in the back seat of Newman's car and Berger climbed in after him, weapons still in hand, and sat down on top of his body. But even Charlie Berger could only take so much. Near Carbondale, he ordered Newman to stop the car. He hurried to the side of the road and began to vomit. He gasped out words when he was able to speak again. That's too much for me, he said. I can kill a man, but I can't sit on him. 
I don't know what in the hell's the matter with me. It isn't my nerves. Every time I kill a man, it makes me sick afterwards. I guess it's my stomach. Berger switched places in the car with Connie Ritter, and a few miles down the road, Price regained consciousness and pleaded with Ritter, swearing he was an innocent man. Ritter also told him to shut up or that he would turn the machine gun on him. A few miles later, Price spoke again, his voice almost a whisper. Connie, you'll live to regret this. Whoops, okay. On that dark night, oh no wait, sorry. Connie, you'll live to regret this. And boy, was he right about that. After going on the run, Connie Ritter was later captured in Mississippi, brought to Illinois, put on trial, and sentenced to life in prison. On that dark night, Berger ordered Newman to drive to a nearby mine, but when they found a watchman on duty, they scrapped the plan. Eventually, they dumped Price in the field where he was later found. Berger shot him several more times to make sure he was dead. On the way back to Harrisburg, one of the men who had kidnapped Ethel Price allegedly told Newman that he and the others had taken her to the abandoned mine, shot her, and then had thrown her body to the bottom of the shaft. Then they covered it with timber, stones, and debris. No one, he claimed, would ever find her. But, of course, that turned out to be wrong. As soon as the gruesome story of Ethel Price's fate was made public, workers began removing the debris that Newman said the men had used to clog the shaft of the old Carterville District Mine. A crowd of onlookers began to gather as the opening deepened, and miners with picks and shovels worked relentlessly to clear the way. Lines formed and buckets filled with dirt and rocks and other debris began to be handed upward from hand to hand, dumped, and then passed back down again. County officials and Sheriff Orrin Coleman labored alongside the outraged citizens who came to volunteer their help. Those not working had a lot of time to stand around and talk. Ethel Price, they said, was an innocent victim killed by gangsters because she saw too much. A rumble went through the crowd as harsh words began to be spoken against Charlie Berger. Tempers flared hotter when a false rumor spread that the pretty young schoolteacher had been pregnant when she was murdered. Berger had just gone too far. Sure, a good number of the men who were complaining about him had given him their money to buy liquor or play cards, and they'd also praised Charlie when he helped out poor Harrisburg families who couldn't pay their rent or buy groceries. But now, it looked as though he'd killed a state policeman and his wife. It was just too much. As darkness fell, lights were strung over the pit, illuminating the ghastly scene. Work continued throughout the night and into the next morning, only stopping briefly during a rainstorm that occurred during the early morning hours. By Sunday afternoon, June 12th, the workers were 30 feet deep into the mine. Planks were nailed on telephone poles that had been laid across the opening earlier in the day. From this platform, it was easy to lower buckets down into the shaft to haul up the debris even faster. They kept working. Early Monday morning, it started raining again. Work was halted once more. Around 3 a.m., a large scoop shovel arrived at the scene and was put into operation. Using the heavy machinery, they cleared away large chunks of concrete and timbers that were just too large to move by hand. Finally, after a piece of sheet iron was hoisted up, workers caught a glimpse of color in the muck. As they peered closer, they saw it was the body of Ethel Price. She was carefully removed from the shaft where she had been hidden for the past five months, and her remains were taken to the Osmond Funeral Home in Marion. The surrounding streets had to be blocked off to keep away the curiosity seekers. Thousands lined those streets to see Ethel's friends and family as they attended the funeral on June 14th at the First Baptist Church. Ethel was buried next to her husband who had pleaded for her life and then joined her in death. The discovery of Ethel Price's body led to the downfall of Charlie Berger. Public opinion, which had often painted him as some sort of folk hero, turned most people against him. 
After, after Ethel's body was found, Berger was moved from the jail in Benton, Illinois, to the Sangamon County Jail in Springfield. His attorneys had already appeared before a judge and requested a change of venue, but the charged atmosphere surrounding the search for Ethel Price made it clear to Franklin County Sheriff Pritchard that a lynching might occur if Berger remained in Benton. Berger arrived in Springfield on the very day that Ethel's body was removed from the bottom of the Carterville mine shaft. Reporters were waiting for him when he stepped out of the automobile that had been used to transport him. He shook his head at them as they shouted out questions. He only had one statement to make. I'm done. Berger was eventually prosecuted for murder, but not for Lori and Ethel Price, but for that of Joe Adams, the mayor of West City. He went to the gallows in April 1928, but that, as we often say, was not quite the end of the story. For many years after the discovery of Ethel Price's body, the area around the abandoned shaft of the old Carterville District mine was largely avoided by people in the vicinity. Even teenagers looking for a thrill on a late Saturday night were afraid to go there. According to an acquaintance of mine who grew up nearby, many were convinced that the ghost of Ethel Price haunted the place. Stories circulated of a woman in a white dress who was sometimes seen around the side of the old forgotten shaft. She reportedly wept in despair, and those who dared to drive too close sometimes claimed she threw herself at the windows of the car, begging to be let inside. The stories of that woman in white continued for many years and are sometimes still recalled today. Thankfully, though, recent reports of the lingering spirit here have been few. We can only hope that Ethel Price is finally resting in peace. Welcome to American well, Hauntings we Podcast. We it, so we should be fine. Perfect. Oh. Where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to a special uh, live recorded episode from the 2019 Dead of Winter Festival at Mineral Springs in Alton, Illinois. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. I have no more notes. My notes are for the end. That's it? Yeah. We're done? No, but you have notes. Oh, I'm supposed to do something for this yes. part. Yes. See, I never know what to do at, like, when we, we've only done this twice, but I'm just sitting here while you read this, and it's really awkward for me. Yeah. I want to start from the back and then come in with, like, some, like, Vince McMahon Yeah, music, maybe some or, smoke, like, like a fog machine. Yeah, yeah, like I don't think that, we have the budget for that. We probably should have done that. I mean, it would be nice. Next time. Yeah, well, next time. I'll start planning for next year. Uh, this is great. I have these little ghost children over there staring yeah, at me. I thought of that last night when I saw yeah, that. That's your favorite thing. It's hilarious. Everybody thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> this is a great crowd. Thank you so much for coming out. I can't believe so many people are here to see this, but I, it's, I'm, I'm really appreciative. Me too. Me too. This is great. Um, so this story was really sad yeah it's a grim one so, it is yeah charlie Berger always has everybody remembers him like jesse james or something or you know everybody that we mythologized as this um you know robin hood kind of character you know and he because he did do things for nice people but you got to remember that he was a, a stone-cold gangster and was not above just shooting anybody who got in his way um 
one of the things that, I mean, a lot of people aren't that familiar with Charlie Berger. I mean, when we think of the 1920s in Illinois, everybody thinks of Chicago. You think about Al Capone and, you know, these gun battles in the streets. But actually, more people died in southern Illinois during the 1920s than died in Chicago. Um, the, 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 the gang life was just as prevalent. It's just there weren't as many gangs. And you didn't have someone like Al Capone running everything. You had uh, the Sheltons and you had the, the Ber Charlie Berger. And they had, as I mentioned, they had been good friends uh, yeah. when they had a common enemy. Uh, but then when that ended and, you know, prohibition dollars were being spread between two rival gangs, they had a falling out. Nobody knows why to this day. No, I mean, that's so. what, just what happens when you get greedy. And they could have worked together <laughs> yeah. and just kept running things the way they were. But I want to, okay, I want to talk about this guy. You said he usually wore two guns in holsters and a Thompson machine gun was Gun laws were slightly looser back then. Um, yeah. Every time I go out wearing two guns and holsters, people make me go home. I don't know why that is. I, you so, know, I don't know. So wait, but were you a cowboy? Because apparently well, Charlie was a cowboy. Yes, he was a cowboy, so I guess that's why he gets a pass. Yeah. And so actually, I just think that nobody wanted to tell him he couldn't carry his guns around. So, well, no. Because no. he was did shoot I, you if you did. Did I ever tell you that my dad was actually a cowboy? No. This isn't even a joke. Like, my, <laughs> yeah, my dad I, I wonder where we were going with that, but yeah, no, no, I did it, not. It's not a joke. He also <laughs> used to tell me that he's killed more brain cells than I've ever had. So I don't know yeah, well, what that means. But yeah, he moved out west right after high school, and he was just a cowboy. He just lived out there in Montana. So uh, he wasn't as cool as uh, Charlie, Charlie Berger. Berger. But um, so, okay, so it's during Prohibition. Um, became a bootlegger, and I uh, was joined up with the Shelton brothers to do battle with the, with the KKK, yes. essentially. Yes. So it's, it's I'm glad Which was that, a big deal. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't realize just how uh, big a role that the Klan, I mean, now we see them as this, you know, kind of a splinter group that nobody pays much attention to, but at the time, they tried to build themselves as like the Rotary Club. Um, right. That was kind of their, right. their, their idea, is get everybody involved, and uh, it was in the 1920s that they really revived, and their initial goal in the 20s, I mean, of course, when they first came around, it was started after the Civil War to keep African Americans from voting. Uh, that was the initial purpose of the of the Klan. Isn't that but, still the purpose of the Klan? Yeah, well, it, and it still is, but now the, the new version of the Klan that came about in the 20s was meant to get rid of not just African Americans, but everybody, pretty much. They were the white nationalists of the 1920s. Right. But because they appealed to a lot of people with their campaigning and fundraising and, you know, and this... Rotary Club, Elks Club kind of mentality at the time, a lot of people joined. Um, but n most of them weren't like the diehard guys that were going out on raids in Southern Illinois. Um, there was a guy named S. Glenn Young who had appointed himself the, um, the head of the Prohibition Unit in Southern Illinois, even though he didn't actually work for anyone in the federal government. He would, again, dress up in guns. He would wear like two bandoliers and, an, and a military uniform. And he was completely nuts. I mean, this guy was nuts. Uh, but that's who the Sheltons and the Burgers, I mean, these guys, everybody was, you know, they were all immigrants, Catholics, uh, Jewish, um, and, you know, they were all running liquor in the 20s when people wanted to drink but legally couldn't. Right. So, yeah, you got to love those self-appointed, you know, yeah, vigilantes. Yeah, that's exactly what he was. So that's, that's where all the trouble started. And then, like I said, when it was over, then... They started fighting each other. Yeah, so I want to talk about this. Gangsters constructed heavily fortified tanks out of old trucks, and they were blasting each other on highways and back roads. This mm -hmm. sounds awesome. Yeah, well, it's, it would make a great movie. It would make a great movie. It's You know, when you see the old gangster movies and you see them in those old cars up and down the yeah, streets yeah, yeah. with Tommy guns blazing at each other, 
Um, that really was, is mostly a myth in Chicago, but it actually happened down in Southern Illinois. They had taken old farm trucks and they covered them with steel plating and they weighed like 3,000 pounds. Yeah. I mean, so they didn't move fast, but they would have like machine gun nests on top and everything and would just ride around and nobody, you know, the police stayed out of the way because they were certainly outmanned and outgunned. and. They just sort of let them do what they wanted, and they drove around and shot each other. I mean, they, I mean, that I, I mentioned several retaliation murders just in that short little story. That's nothing. I mean, they were on an almost daily basis. Somebody would find a body somewhere shot up on a road in Southern Illinois. That's crazy. So, and a lot of guys to spare, I guess. Yeah. Well, so. and I mean, they took it a step further. Can we talk about this first aerial bombing in American history? Because <laughs> that just yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. Well, they thought. They took dynamite, wrapped it up, and then put nitroglycerin bottles with it. And so they thought, being not exactly experienced bomb makers, they weren't thought chemists. that when they dropped them, they would just explode. The nitroglycerin would explode and it would make the dynamite explode. But they completely missed the roadhouse. But again, keep in mind, it's the very first one. So they had right. No, right. no idea of what to shoot for, but they kept flying over because how would they defend themselves? So they kept flying by and dropping the bombs, but they kept missing the roadhouse. And then the bombs wouldn't explode. And then finally one did explode and hit the dog that was chained up out back. Not to make fun of the, of the dog dying, but okay. you know. That was the was, part, honestly, yeah. that made me the most upset out of yeah. the whole story. <laughs> yeah. I so to go it, John it didn't do any good, but so Charlie and his guys decided that they would show them how a bomb was supposed to be made. And they made one and drove by Joe Adams' house and threw it, but still missed the porch. Right. Uh, but it, it did blow up at least. Right. Well, you got to watch Fight Club to learn yeah. how to make make a bomb. So Joe Adams died from like a really weird telegram. Chicago handshake. Right. Sh yeah. Oh, Chicago. There's a name yeah, for it. There's a name for it. Uh, in November of 1924, uh, Dean O'Banion was in his flower shop in Chicago, and uh, three guys came in. Uh, ask him for flowers for a funeral he was putting together. Oh, I should mention, if you don't know who Dean O'Banion was, very famous Irish mobster in Chicago, but he also loved flowers. Had a flower shop downtown. Anyway, three guys came in. Uh, they grabbed a hold of him. All of them stuck. They, as they grabbed his hand, all of them stuck pistols into his stomach and opened fire, and it became known as a Chicago handshake. So essentially, that's what they did to Joe Adams. That so. is, that sounds like a really cool wrestling move. Yeah, yeah. Or it sounds like a good name for a bar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Chicago the, the, handshake. The bloody bucket. Yeah. In the Chicago yeah. handshake. Oh. So they believed. Uh, let's see. They believed that he was. I'm sorry, I lost my spot. They believe Price was involved, or at least knew about the bombing of yes. Shady Rest, right? Yes. So well, he was a cop, and he'd been hanging around, and they kind of felt like that maybe he had told the Sheltons when would be the best time to blow the place up. And right. he said the middle of the night. So, well, so it's, it did. seems like, I mean, with all these people, you're double-crossing each other all the time, yeah. and so you never know like who to blame or right. who's coming right. after you, because it could right. be your own people, because you know too much, or it could be Well, and you know, the thing about Lori Price, too, is that, you know, Cops who looked the other way or even participated in some of these things, that was not an uncommon thing during Prohibition. Right, right. Um, there was so much money going around, and most people believed Prohibition. It, it wasn't like drugs or something. They believed it was a, a harmless thing to break the law. So there were a lot of police officers who took money to look the other way because it was, it was dumb. It was, it was silly 
things they had to enforce, right. you know. And so the fact that he looked the other way really isn't that uncommon. Um, the fact that he was murdered for it kind of is, but honestly, by this point, we're talking about the last year or so of Charlie Berger's life. Um, as you can see from some of the quotes that I read you and the way that he behaved with, his, with the other guys when they were dragging those bodies around, he'd become pretty erratic by this time. Right, right. Um, so if, if he didn't end up taking himself out, which he did, probably one of his own guys would have done it for him. Yeah. But he was eventually convicted for conspiracy for Joe Adams' murder. Not they couldn't prove that he killed Lorraine Apple Price. Yeah, and so, so. you said like you said he starts to become pretty erotic. Uh, and I er erratic. I'm sorry, erratic. not not erotic. Oh God, that's a different podcast. Oh God. So yeah, I mean he may have, but I, I'm not aware of it. I, I'd say Freudian slip, but I guess I mean it is. That's what I'm. The story's hot. Um, sorry, it's the Bloody Mary. Um, so. They're in the car. Newman tells him to stop the car. He hurries the side of the road, starts to throw up. And I want to talk about this quote. There's a lot to uh, unpack here. He said, it's too much for me. I can kill a man, but I can't sit <laughs> I on can't him. I can't sit on him. Yeah. What? What? I, I think he just meant that he was getting very uncomfortable sitting. And then he goes on to say that every time he kills somebody, it makes him sick. So I, you know, I, which begs to number how many times, how many people he killed. Yeah, no, it never makes me but, sick to kill somebody. Yeah, I, um... He uh, apparently just didn't like sitting on the squishy body of his friend. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you get the car so all yeah. gross in your yeah. pants. Yeah. He's that's, wearing his nicest gangster guess. pants suit. So, uh, anyway. so he just made one of his guys switch seats with him and made him sit on the body so he could sit in the front seat. And well, yeah, him. I mean, that's what you yeah. do when you're, so. when you're running the show. You don't, right. you don't no, sit no, on the body. No, you don't sit on the body. But they, so they dumped the body, and then they shot it several more times just, just for good measure. Sure. And they, when they're searching for Ethel Price, uh, they didn't find her for like five months. Well, yeah, and, I, and nobody knew where to look. It wasn't until they arrested Art Newman and he confessed. They would have never have found her otherwise. I mean, there's just too many. Anybody who's been down in southern Illinois knows how vast that area is of woods and bluffs and rivers and creeks and empty mines. And there are a million places to hide people down there. And if Art Newman hadn't been caught and decided to talk, and turned state's witness, they would have never have found her. Well, they finally pinpointed it, but the only thing I can think of, this was just a couple, three guys who went out there and dumped this body. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine how they moved that much debris. And that's what I was so wondering. So my guess is, is that she fell down into an opening in the shaft and fell down pretty far. And there was already a bunch of stuff dumped in there. They dumped a few more things, but the only way to get a search team in there would be to excavate the whole thing. I right. think that's what took so long. Because I kind of wondered about that too. I'm like, why didn't, how come they couldn't find, how, how did two guys dump all that stuff in? Concrete blocks and all kinds of stuff. But I think that's probably, it had already been dumped. Just a bunch so, of dogs yeah, on yeah, top of her yeah. already. Dogs killed in explosions. Oh, so terrible. So he's eventually prosecuted for murder. Like you said, it was of Joe Adams though. And then you said, according to an acquaintance of yours who grew up nearby, many are convinced that the ghost of Ethel Price uh, at one point was haunting Haunted the, the old mine shaft. Is this kind of like yeah. the Resurrection Mary type Kind stories? of. Um, she, she, uh, the story went that it, people who had seen her claimed that they would hear her out there crying, they would encounter her out there in the woods. And there were a couple of stories that my friend had told me about kids who had gone out there and claimed they saw the woman in white and she had come up to their car and was beating on the window. Um, maybe trying to get away from where she was stuck. I mean, that's my best guess. Uh, so we, she is kind of a vanishing hitchhiker type story when it went around. And, you know, and maybe it was just folklore. Um, maybe it was just a story that people told about that area. But a lot of the people who told the story didn't know the history behind it, he, he told me. 
Uh, all they knew was that it was a place where kids went to go parking, Lover's Lane area, and One of those. they would go out there to, to spook themselves but didn't know who this woman was or anything about it. So Now that is erotic. Yeah, that's, I guess that would be more erotic. Got yes. it. Okay. So, then well, Charlie Burger's pants. <laughs> Charlie Burger's pants, that, that Chicago handshake. Well, that's all I have. Does anyone have any questions for us about this story, about anything, about why I say the things I say? I mean, anything is, is fair game right now. <laughs> Yes. Well, I was wondering, why is it in all the ghost stories it's always a woman in white? Okay. Great question. Yeah, I know. I can. Yeah, that that is a good question. Why is it always a woman in white? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a good question, um, and I've heard that because they all wear white. It seems like you know, unless you get a. Sometimes you'll get a story. I mean, there is a story about a. Believe it or not, there are men. Vanishing hitchhikers. I mean, we always just talk about women, but there are men um, sometimes wearing suits and that kind of thing. But it seems that the majority of women hitchhikers are always wearing a white party dress. Yeah. I mean, that's always that addition that gets added in. My, my if I had to guess, I would say maybe. I, I don't know. I don't even know if I have a guess. Maybe maybe she glows and they just say, oh, it was white, you know, because. Like Mary Bergovi, the, the famous vanishing hitchhiker, was, was wearing an orchid-colored dress, and that's how a lot of people saw her. They didn't see her in white. Um, so, I don't know. It I'll, is a good question. all the hitchhikers I see... I'll let you know next year. All, so. all the hitchhikers I've seen look like they've been through some shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. They're always... Oh, yeah. You like, mean there's hitchhikers a, on the road. Like, there's a yeah. story. Yeah. That's why these girls get picked up because they're always wearing white party dresses. Because normally hitchhikers we see are always so dirty that you would not want them in your car. Yeah. So, yeah, or look like Charlie Manson. So. <laughs> exactly. A woman in white from Oakville. Oh, see now there's another woman in white. So, that haunts the staircase. So yeah, it's a common theme. We don't know. We don't know why. Yeah. So. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, yeah right behind her. Okay. So I was kind of close when I said glowing. Yes. Okay, so we were somewhat close. Yeah, so I, you guys probably didn't, since it didn't pick it up, one of our guests um, is a medium from Michigan, and she said that what people are seeing is the energy, and that white is what we're able to see with our eyes, and so you get it, the image of a white dress, so, yeah, so I was somewhat close. Yeah, you were on it. I just made that up. Mich so. Michigan medium <laughs> confirms. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, right here, and then I'll get to you right in a second. It kind of became that way, yeah. He, I know, I believe it was Bernie Shelton up in Peoria. Yes. Parkway and yes. From yes. If you'd be interested in more about this story, I have a book called Bloody Illinois, oh. uh, which just might have more in it. Here um, it is. But yes, the Sheltons all were ended up, most of them ended up murdered too. Um, we were talking about the feud between them, but Bernie Shelton was killed at the Parkway Tavern up near Peoria, and uh, a sniper shot took him out. And uh, he actually was supposed to have haunted that roadhouse for a, quite a few years afterward. 
Uh, so that ghost story, I don't know if it's still told. I haven't heard it recently, but I know that for years they talked about things going on there at the parkway where Bernie Shelton was killed. Another one of the brothers was shot off his tractor um, on his farm. He tried to retire. Um, so, I mean, the, the fighting continued on because after Charlie Berger was gone, um, I mean, this is such a complicated story, but um, there had been some of Charlie's guys had um, submitted some perjured testimony to federal court and got the the Shelton's sentenced to Leavenworth for years. So Charlie really thought he'd won, but the case was overturned and they got back out, which is how this all ended up the way that it did. But after Charlie was gone, the Shelton's did run things for a while, but the issue then became prohibition ended. And so now all that was left were the rackets, the, the gambling, the prostitution, and the drugs, that kind of thing. And there was a real vacuum of power in Illinois because the Chicago mob, which now had become the syndicate, now they were a nationwide thing. The outfit was trying to run all of Illinois and didn't want any interference from the Sheltons, so they then tried to buy them out and then they just killed them because that's how it works, you know, in that kind of thing. So eventually the Sheltons were put out of business too. Um, they made it a little longer into the 40s, I believe, but not much past that. Uh, they moved most of their operations up to Peoria, where Bernie had died, and uh, were running Peoria for a while, and then they ended up with a um, kind of a um, reformer mayor who came in and wouldn't do business with them anymore, because Peoria was a pretty wide open town in the 30s, even after Prohibition. Uh, you could pretty much do whatever you want if you paid the right people, uh, but then a new mayor came in and got rid of everything. And so that put them in trouble too. It's, it is, it's a really complicated story. It's a great story, uh, but it is just as complicated as, you know, the Capone stuff and the outfit and everything in Chicago. It's just people just don't know it quite as well uh, because we don't get movies. For one right. thing, so and now, so now I see your real motive. You're just here to sell books. I thought you no, just I liked really, doing I just this like the podcast story. With oh, me. I see. I Whatever. See. Gotcha. The gentleman in red. Yes. Oh yeah, there are more stories. I just chose that one for the, the, the Ethel Price connection to make this story about Lori and Ethel Price. But yeah, there is. Um, in fact, the, uh, the, the jail where Charlie was hanged and bit in the old Franklin County Jail um, is open now as a historic site. And it is, uh, it's very haunted. Um, we're going down there in the early part of May for an event. And um, it's, a, it's an active spot, but, and not just for Charlie, but he was hanged there the site. So. Awesome. Great yeah. question. How many years did he get for murdering his wife? Well, he didn't, um, Lori Price was killed. He didn't get, he, he was hanged. So for murder, for murdering Joe Adams, he was hanged in April of 28. So he was the last man to be hanged, for last legal hanging in the state of Illinois. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So <laughs> then we switched to the chair. So. Oh, the chair, yeah, the yeah. much more humane method of, you know, so, shock. Yeah, like I said, it's a really, it's a complicated story. He was on trial for quite some time. He tried to, to enter in an insanity defense when all of his appeals began to fail. And so um, he'd show up in court and sit on the, sit on the, in a, in a defense table in court and, you know, talk nonsense and act, you know, like all those mobsters did in, in the 80s and 90s, they'd bring in those guys and then they'd all claim that they were senile and they tried to try them and couldn't a lot of times. Well, Charlie tried the same thing to get out of being hanged. 
Um, and everybody just said it was very embarrassing. <laughs> they were embarrassed for him, you know. So, but eventually he went to the gallows and um, with a smile on his face, if you ever see the pictures, he's up there grinning while they're tying him up and getting ready to put the noose on. And the last thing he ever said was, it's a wonderful life. And then they, wow. they hanged him. I thought it would be, I can kill a man, but I can't sit on him. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, he's got a, he's got a great, his epitaph on his tombstone, I, I can't remember it exactly, but it goes something like, um, they, they got me for a lot of things I didn't do, but I got away with a lot of things they never caught me at, so I guess we, it worked out even. That's what he had put on his tombstone, so, which I'm going to steal. I really like that one, so... Imagine the guy that sees that has to carve it. He's like, that's so, I'm yeah, not, I'm not so doing long. that. So. Any other questions? Uh, yep. Oh, sure. You're not missing anything. You're lucky. Yeah. You might have to record her separately and put that in. Yeah, no, yeah. I'll yeah, we'll, 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 rec we're, Cody is going to get with you later and record that separately so people can hear it. Okay. Yeah. And yes, yes. Um, they are open on, I believe, on Saturdays for tours. Uh, but then, yeah, we're doing a ghost hunt there May the 4th, I think. Um, it's on our website. So, What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's open to the public. Yeah, it is. It's on our website. Yeah. So, but it, it's, it's a cool location. It's a really neat old jail. Well, you, you saw it, uh, but it's a neat old jail. And um, there is a lot of, there's a lot of stories, a lot of accounts from people who've had experiences there since it's been opened as a historic site. So. Awesome. Great question. Great story. I want to see that weird picture too. Uh, any other questions? Okay. We better wrap it up. Okay. Uh, I think that's it. Thank you all for listening to our nonsense. And, um, Do you want to read the closer? Oh, yeah, I guess. We typed it up if you want to read it. No one listens to it. That's anyway. true. Okay. So, so. Yeah, we, we've had a debate about this. I have dozens of emails to prove otherwise. But anyway, uh, this episode of American Haunts Podcast. I trimmed this. I, I got it. Okay. It was, was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by no one because I'm not going to edit this at all. <laughs> You're going to put her story in, so it is technically edited. Just let me have okay. this. In each, <laughs> in each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained <laughs> events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books, as well as information sometimes about upcoming Cody tours, remembers to put new episodes events, there. and haunted happenings. Check us out on Patreon, follow us on all social media, and uh, get ready for Season 3 on February 26th. Thanks for coming out. All right, thanks, guys. a picture because my parents still don't understand what I do. They yeah, think I run a right. blog. Mine don't either. Yeah. Um, 
Guys, we're going to take about a 10-minute break or so, um, and that'll give us time to get things straightened up, and we'll get ready for our next speakers. So if you want to get up, move around, uh, use the restrooms, buy books, whatever, um, feel free to wander around and then